For listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Terry O'Reilly. Terry is Canada's advertising guru, demonstrating how persuasion is an art via his radio show, his podcast, his books, and his speaking engagements. He offers the general public a rare backstage pass into the world of the advertising industry, examining the power of marketing on our modern daily lives. Terry's special interest is in deconstructing the business of marketing as companies and brands seek to truly connect emotionally with today's consumers. Welcome, Terry, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? <laughs> well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. <clears throat> well, I am in my what I call my writing shed, which is a little 280 square foot building that's just built for me to write in, to have a little uh, quiet. And, um, and I... We live just north of Huntsville, Ontario, so we're on a beautiful lake. I'm looking at a lake past your eye line. And is this a, uh, a COVID-related geographic decision, or how would you end up just north of Huntsville? No, it, was, um, it wasn't anything to do with COVID. We lived for uh, 16 years in Cremor, Ontario. <clears throat> we owned a cottage before that, uh, but we lived in the country in Cremor because we love we loved the quiet life. Especially when my career was at its peak, Andrew, my my life was pretty crazy. So I always loved to have a little, you know, sanctuary to go home to. So anyway, my wife missed the water. So we decided to sell our place in Cremor and then uh, find a place on the water again. So here we are. Were you an early adopter of this? We've all kind of learned COVID's taught us all. You don't have to be anywhere to work and you can have work and life balance. Were you, it sounds like you're kind of an early pioneer for not having to be at young and bluer to do your job. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I would drive into Toronto once a week to record my radio show and it was killing me because it was two hours each way. So four hours of driving and then two and a half hours to record my show. So it was all day and the, the drive into Toronto and out of Toronto in rush hour was just you know, it's just a creep. It's just, you're one inch at a time and it was killing me. And I always loved Airstream trailers. I, I'm not a trailer guy, but I love the aesthetic of an Airstream and, you know, just the, the aluminum look of it, I, the roundness of it. And one day my wife said to me, <clears throat> could we build a recording studio in an Airstream? And I said, oh my God, that's a, that's a brilliant idea. So we started our search for an Airstream. I wanted a vintage one from the 60s. We found one not far from where we live, believe it or not, a 1969 Airstream. Then we found somebody to totally restore it and and build a recording studio in it. So suddenly I didn't have to be in Toronto. My house with my cup of coffee, six steps and right into this beautiful Airstream trailer. And that's what we've had. So And I could pull it between our cottage and our home. I wasn't tethered to Toronto anymore. And we still have it right now. And that's where we record all our shows. Well, that's amazing. And with the mobility, you even added another factor. You literally can go where you want, when you want. Right. Right. Exactly amazing. right. Exactly right. Now, Terry, you essentially operate a family business, albeit it's not a greasy spoon or a car dealership or a, <clears throat> a garbage collection enterprise. Tell us about your family business. Well, um, right at the start of the uh, pandemic, 
my family being two of my three daughters and my wife. My third daughter lives in London, England. She's a teacher over there. <clears throat> we decided to start a company, a podcast company, because under the influence of been podcasting since 2011. So, I mean, we were pioneer podcasters back then. And uh, I, th- I saw a void for a podcasting company in this country. Then that evolved into a podcasting network. So not only do we have homegrown podcasts, but we take on selectively podcasts created outside of our walls and we offer them marketing and a platform, et cetera, et cetera. So the apostrophe podcast network is the family company. So my wife is the executive producer. She has lots of years in the advertising business, knowing how to produce. One of my daughters is a director the other daughter is a writer, and uh, and I have a little bit of both of those aspects. So, uh, yeah, it's been a very successful thing. So when we were launching, Andrew, we had this huge launch all planned, as you can only imagine us marketers do, and then the pandemic hit in March 2020. And it seemed inappropriate to come out blaring and, and you know, with your whole band going. And so we had to mute our our launch to the smallest little you know, appropriate sounding uh, launch, which is the worst way to launch a company is to come out quiet. But we had to do that as it just seemed wrong to go any other way. So we slowly had to get, and I'll say something else too. Economic hardships, economic uh, bad economies have been the signposts of my career. So I got out of Ryerson in 81, right into a recession. So very hard to find jobs. Started pirate radio and television in 1990 into a soft recession. Then we expanded into New York City for recording studios in the great recession of 2008. And then I launched with my family pod, uh, a posture podcast company right as the pandemic hit. So all of those beats, those horrible beats are the beats of my career. And, and this is, as we know, life, it throws stuff at you. You got to accept what you can and can't control. That's, that's quite an uh, often theme of a lot of your different episodes. So we're yeah. going to talk about all this stuff, Terry. I want to go, if I may, all the way back and get the Terry O'Reilly story. You are not a native Torontonian. Where were you born? And, and please describe your upbringing. Born in Sudbury, Ontario, nickel capital of the world. Uh, my father worked in the Falker Bridge nickel mine. He wasn't underground. He was an office guy. He was uh, in the purchasing department. My mom was a nurse. And uh, grew up in Sudbury, stayed there till I left to go to Ryerson in 1978. It was a, it was a great upbringing in, in hindsight, I think, because my family was great. And Sudbury was an interesting place to grow up because we didn't get, you know, bouncing radio signals from far off places, probably because of the amount of rock around Sudbury. Mm-hmm. And we didn't get, you only had two television stations growing up and, um, Movies were movies and television were our saviors. So we really got heavily into pop culture. My dad loved movies, so that there was that. And you had to use your imagination a lot because you, there wasn't a lot of of outside influence coming into that little town. So we got to really flex our imaginations. So it was a, a great place to grow up. There's 300 lakes, and I'm not exaggerating. There are 300 lakes around Sudbury, Ontario. So you can get on your bicycle, you know. For, and bike for five minutes and be on a lake. So it was a wonderful uh, upbringing. And when you talk about this outside influence, Terry, you're, you're, uh, would this have been Canadian stations? When you talk about the two stations, you wouldn't have had access to the American stations. When I grew up with CBC, and I want to say CTV were the only two stations we could get for the longest time. Maybe Global showed up 
as a third station, but for the lot for most of my, you know, single digit years and teenage years, that was really the extent of it. And what drove you as you finished high school and decided to go to post secondary to come to Toronto? Was Ryerson your target or how did that all happen? Here's the amazing thing in Sudbury in high school, which was grades nine to 13 at that time, we had a full television and film course. We had Andrew a whole studio. We had lights, cameras, switching boards, everything. So for five years, I studied television and film. So when I came time to think about a university, uh, Ryerson at that time was just the place to be. They only accepted, um, I think it was at that time, 600, no, yeah, maybe 600 kids a year. So it was very hard to get into it. But I think it was because my marks weren't so great, but I had five years of television. I had a reel. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So when I went into an interview, uh, I had a reel where everybody else was really looking to have to start having a reel, you know, to understand the business. So yeah. that got me into the nursing. Why did Sudbury, your high school, have that program so well developed? Was that just a fluke or? You know what? The teacher, Sterling Campbell, was uh, he his dad was an early filmmaker in Canada, did some of the very first if not the first or the very second film feature film ever done in this country way back in the forties or something. He, he wasn't even a Sudbarian. He just got the job there, but he was a, he was a cameraman. He had done commercials and TV shows and I guess he came to Sudbury and there was an opportunity. So he just started that course and got it off the ground and made us all fall in love with broadcast. Oh, well, so when I went, that? just a little note, Andrew, when yeah. I went to Ryerson, I only wanted to study television. That was my dream. When I got there, the way Ryerson at that time uh, played out was it was a three-year course. First year was radio. Second year was television. Third year was film. I was so disappointed that the first year was radio. I thought I have to waste an entire year of my three years studying radio, which is so ironic in hindsight. Yes, but don't I, don't I fall in love with it as, as that year played out? Well, as they say, not many of us know what we want to do. Uh, so for you to get a, that, even though you knew your general area to right. get exposure to these different uh, mediums, I guess was really uh, effective for you, obviously. Now, Terry, talk about your, if I may use the word culture shock, you come from Sudbury. I'm assuming you were about 18 years old to come mm-hmm. to Toronto and go to Ryerson. And I'm going to guess, were you living downtown at that time? Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, right across from Ryerson. So it was a, it was a huge culture shock. I mean, Toronto seemed like New York to me, coming from a little town of, you know, 90,000 people, very, very quiet mining town to go to like, not just Toronto, but downtown Toronto. You know, we had sex workers in the lobby using our phones, you know, in the wintertime. And it was, I had never seen anything like that in my life. And, and the, the speed of Toronto and the people, and it took a lot of getting used to, but thankfully, I had some great friends that I made at Ryerson that were Torontonians. So they really took me by the hand and, and, you know, indoctrinated me into the Toronto life. And any places you remember from that time, Terry, that you love to maybe eat at or hang around the pinball arcade or your favorite greasy spoon, anything you remember from that time at Ryerson? Um, well, one, one great gathering place was the, the was called Oakham house at Ryerson, which was a bar. So it was right across the street from Ryerson, kind of run by Ryerson. You could go there and have lunch, but you could also order beer and 
So we used to hang out there an awful lot. Um, what else was going on at that time? There was, uh, you know, punk rock and new wave was just coming in. Yeah. 78, 79, 80, 81. So there was a, a dance, like a, a club called Nuts and Bolts. Okay. Which was li- literally within a block and a half of Ryerson that we spent a lot of our time and money at. Yeah. It was that. And, you know, the planetarium was a place we used to go to a lot, which isn't open anymore. Yeah. And we used to love that. I mean, you go in there and it'd be like a Beatle night and you'd sit back in those chairs and look up at the stars and they'd just play all those great Beatle tracks. And it was... Those kind of things I loved about Toronto because Sudbury just never could never offer that. Yeah, that, that uh, that's a great. Uh, the planetarium is long uh, missed. Yeah. I with you and yeah. the, the mixing it with music, they were ahead of their time on that kind of thing, bringing a general population in for a a, a science thing. I agree with you. It, it was really ahead of its time, and 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 the programs they put together. Even when you went to see a, you know, I was nineteen or twenty years old with no interest in classical music, and then they'd have like a Beethoven night, and it was just mind blowing to hear that kind of music and then hear this and see the stars. And it's fantastic. Before we move on from Ryerson, you are the perfect person to ask this just two weeks ago, as you may be aware, Ryerson university announced the name change. It's now going to be the Toronto metropolitan university. Mm-hmm. Immediately they got into conflict with a bunch of name squatters. People had jumped on this name. I wondered if you had any comments on the implementation and the communication that Ryerson used in making this name change and are kind of, are you in favor of it or or from a business perspective, how they handled it? Do you think it was done well? Uh, That's hard to say. That's a good question. I mean, I only have really seen a couple of mainstream articles about it and then the actual communication from Ryerson about it or from the uh, Metropolitan about it. Um, I think the name change was necessary. It's funny, you know, the, the township we live in is called Ryerson also named after Egerton Ryerson, where I am right now, which the, mm. I wonder if that will change eventually. But I, uh, how was it handled? I can't really comment on that, Andrew, because I only saw a little bit of it. Uh, I was surprised by the name, what it ended up being. Maybe it'll all grow on me. I, I just, you know, I wasn't enthralled with that name. But A little uh, too generic. A little generic, yeah. And, uh, and all I got was... Uh, I remember getting some communications from Ryerson saying that this was no committee was looking into it. They were looking over many, many names, et cetera. And then I saw the announcement. Here's the new name. So it was really, we're thinking, we're thinking, boom. Yeah. Well, I do. You're, you're a humble guy, Terry, but I do want to note that you were in an inaugural inductee to the RTA radio and television arts school of media's hall of fame. So congrats on that. And uh, Thank you. you'll always be remembered at Ryerson. Now, what did you do in your summers while you're at Ryerson? Did you have any interesting jobs or what would you have done in the summers between your academic years? I worked in the mine, Andrew. Oh boy, back home. I worked, yeah, back home in Sudbury. So I worked a mile underground. So I, I had a lot of different uh, tasks in the mine, but uh, the, the one that took most of my time was they put me down at the crusher, which is the very bottom of the mine. So every level, every, you know, 2000 feet or every 200 feet is a different level. And they would send all the nickel down to the bottom of the mine and have it crushed and then send it back up to the smelter. And I would, I was alone at the bottom of the mine working the crusher, which was just a matter of pressing buttons at certain times. But yeah, I was down, uh, I was down about 4,000, 4,200 feet, something like that, almost a mile anyway. I think you're either going to tell me now that it, it taught you the value of solitude and 
having time for your thoughts, or you're going to tell me you still have stress disorder from, I think that would be really uh, uh, pressure on your mind to be that low. Did you convince yourself you weren't really at the bottom of a mine or interesting? Your mind plays an interesting trick on you when you go down. In other words, when you're going up in something, you can like, if you're going up stairs or, you know, going up a parking park uh, arcade, you have a sense of how high you are. When you go down into the earth, you have no sense how low you are. Oh yeah. Cause there's no signposts. There's no windows. Right. So while I knew I was 4,000 feet underground, it did, I, I never fully grasped how far that was from the surface. It was a lonely time down there, but the funniest thing was there was a telephone down there. So I would call my girlfriend, now my wife, and we would just yap for hours, like for hours between when I had to go and do whatever I had to do, you know? So it was really just a matter of being on the phone with her for four hours of my eight hour shift. You've Too always fun. been ahead of your time. Today, you wouldn't get a cell phone signal. And yet back then you had a landline. <laughs> That's right. 4,000 feet underground, a better signal than I have today. Now, Terry, if I'm not mistaken, you began your career post-Ryerson. You were at FM 108 Radio in Burlington. How did that get that job and what did that entail? I knew that I wanted to be an advertising writer. And just a little note on that. There was no advertising course in Ryerson at that time. I don't even know if there was a marketing course, uh, an advertising course to be had in the country in 1981. But every Wednesday, Andrew, we would have a speaker come in and talk to us about their their part of the uh, you know broadcasting world. So we'd have documentary filmmakers come in. Lloyd Robertson came in and talked about being a newscaster. The Friendly Giant, if you remember, I don't know how old you are. I do remember the Friendly Giant. Bob Hami came in to talk about what it was like to put on a kid's show every every day. So we had wonderful access to people like that. One day, two advertising people came in and talked about the advertising business, about coming up with selling ideas and strategy and studios and actors and, and print ads. And I was sitting in the back of that room and I saw my future. Everything they described, I just was, was fascinated by. And that's the moment I decided that I wanted to write uh, commercials. So uh, when I got out of Ryerson, I sent dozens and dozens of resumes out to advertising agencies across the country, hoping to get an, uh, an entry-level writing job. I got back, I think I sent out, I know I sent out close to 60 resumes and got back uh, 60 rejection letters. Um, so nobody would have me. It was a recession. My fiance lived in Burlington, so I would take the go bus. You couldn't even get there, you know, by train at that time to go bus to Burlington every weekend to spend time with her. And I would pass this little radio station in Burlington. I could see it from the from the bus. And one day I got out early and uh, crossed the highway and put my resume in there. And lo and behold, they hired me. And uh, they there was no other creative person that that they let they said here you're the copy chief. Mm-hmm. So coming right out of Ryerson with no real practical experience, I was suddenly in charge of a creative department at a tiny little radio station. So it was catastrophe and it was baptism by fire, but uh, I learned the, I learned the business. I learned how to write quickly. I learned how to deal with clients. I also had to produce all my work because there was no producer. It was a tiny little radio station. So I got to uh, understand how a studio works. When I look back on that, I learned so much in that job out of sheer survival. Yeah. <laughs> but I still have all those skills today. 
you have so many uh, lessons learned. I mean, first of all, it took the 61st resume, but that was the one. You right. see this place where you're going by on the train. And then, like you say, baptism by fire. You, sometimes that's the best way to learn. Now, you transitioned over time. You ended up becoming an award-winning copywriter for a variety of Toronto advertising agencies. You worked with some of the biggest brands we all know. What was that kind of uh, phase of your career like? Again, in the learning phase, and I imagine you had a great opportunity to try things with these big brands that you could only have dreamed of otherwise. Without question. Um, I got to a point where I wanted to get back to Toronto and I wanted to really fulfill my big goal, which was to work in a big national advertising agency. Um, I got I, I called up some creative directors. I, I, first of all, I dialed up my courage to call up big time creative directors. I managed to get about a half dozen appointments. The first one was with this uh, very flamboyant creative director named Trevor Goodgall at an agency called Campbell Ewald, a Detroit based agency with a Toronto office. Uh, he took a look at my book. I put together print ads because that was the way into to advertising at that time. And uh, he hired me. He said, I'll take you on for two weeks. And I said, but if you like me, will you keep me on? And he said, well, we'll see. And he ended up keeping me on. And uh, he became my mentor. So he really taught me so much about the big leagues. He taught me that, you know, how to really work hard to get a big idea. He had this amazing ability, Andrew, that he could turn all your work down and send you back to your office on fire to do better. Mm -hmm. And I never found that again in another boss, by the way. Uh, so our work was, we won, I think we won 60 awards in, our, in my very first year there with him. Wow. And it wasn't that I was so good, it's that he was so good at pulling great work out of us. And he also taught me another valuable thing that uh, that's very rarely taught. He taught me how to present. Okay. Because I feel, <clears throat> and I've said this so often on my show, so many great ideas die in the boardroom. It's not that, you know, when you look at advertising, everybody says, why is advertising so bad? So many great ideas die in the boardroom because people aren't great presenters. They don't know how to, you know, control a room, set up an idea, reveal it, and then deal with all the skepticism or all the negative comments from clients and still have them leaving the room approving the ad. Trevor was a master at that. And I just, just, just used to watch him, you know, do that in a boardroom, that magic he had. And he was, he was a great teacher in that, you know, he would, you know, after we would, if I did the presentation after the presentation, he'd come into my office and say, you know, what could have gone better there is this. And he would, and I would never be offended by that because I was a sponge. I yep. wanted to learn. So I learned how to present. And once I got over the fear of presenting, because it, it was a white knuckle fear of mine, once I got over the hump of that, and the way I got over the hump of that was I just volunteered to present as often as I could. I put my hand up and I just kind of, kicked my way through that fear. And I got to the point where I actually look forward to the presentations. And that's when my batting average went way up. Wow. But it's all because just, it taught me well. It's not just the message. It's how it gets delivered. Well, it's just getting someone to buy your idea. I mean, yeah. you, that's the other side of the coin. One side is generating ideas. The other side is getting somebody to buy those ideas. And would you say what Trevor kind of showed you and made you feel good about yourself, would you call that constructive criticism or, or would you have a different kind of heading for the way that he demonstrated there's a way to help you make your work better, but still uh, ins make sure your confidence was intact. Yeah. I, I don't know if there, there's probably a word out there that's perfect, but I will say this. 
he never insulted us. He never just said no, which a lot of subsequent bosses before I became a boss would just say no and not give you anything to go back with or, you know, to like, or he'd look at an ad and he'd go, you know what? In your copy is the big idea, not the, not the headline. Like, there's your idea. And you go, oh, my God, yeah. And you'd run back and then completely re-engineer that ad and bring it back to me. He goes, there it is. You know, like, he was that kind of guy that could really – he was a leader. He wasn't just a boss. He, was, he knew how to nurture a creative department. He knew how to infuse them with confidence. He taught me the world's my oyster. I mean, one of the – I think the very first radio campaign – he uh, assigned to me was for Eastern airlines at the time. Okay. And I did a funny little idea. It was, a uh, we we're com- uh, communicating to business travelers that Eastern had the best business routes to different locations. And I came up with this kooky idea where I wanted someone to sing songs. Cause it was Pittsburgh, Atlanta and Philadelphia were the locations. They weren't very glamorous. So I thought, you know, Chicago's got a song. New York's got a song. Pittsburgh has no song. <laughs> no song. So I'll have somebody just sing a song about Pittsburgh. And I, he said to me, Trevor, who do you see, what talent, like what actor do you see pulling this off? And I said to him, well, I saw somebody on, on the Tonight Show uh, last week that played piano with a cigar and he was just really funny. If I could get somebody like him and Trevor said, get him and left my office. And I thought, oh my God. And I, you know, we had a producer on staff. We ended up calling Hollywood, getting this guy, flying him up. And I remember being in the recording studio, looking through the glass, thinking, oh, my God, there's the guy I watched on The Tonight Show 10 days ago reading my work. That's incredible. Trevor, Trevor was, you know, if he wanted a big actor or try and entice an expensive director to do a work, he said, let's do it. Let's call him. Like he never said tamper down your expectations or be really Canadian about it. He was yeah. like, go get it. All fantastic. And I'll say one more thing, Andrew, about him. If we were ever in a situation where we presented a great idea and the client just didn't buy it, even with all that magic that Trevor had, and we went back to the drawing board and then we generate something, a new idea, and we present it to Trevor and Trevor would say, okay, that's a great idea of the original idea and this idea, which is better. And when we said, well, the original idea, Trevor said, okay, we're going back in with that one. Hmm. Like we would go back in the boardroom and represent the work that had been turned down as our recommendation. Like I never saw that kind of courage again. That's I did incre- it later in my life because I learned from Trevor, but that was an epiphany to me that you could have that much conviction and risk losing an account to try and sell the best possible work. Wow. Confidence. Everything comes back to confidence. And I would be remiss, Terry, if I didn't ask who was that pianist from the Carson show that you had do your Eastern song? Pete Barbeauty. Okay. You have to look him up. He was a very, very funny cigar chomping guy that did all his work on a piano. Like he was, he would sing and then do comedy bits and then start playing the piano again, then stop, you know, say a funny line. Like you'll see him. He's got a thing. He's got to look him up for sure. Now, Terry, in 1990, you left the, let's call it the corporate advertising world. You launched your own radio and television advertising production company, pirate radio and television. This was a creative audio production company. You did script sound and music for radio and television commercials. What made you start your own company? And and what was that experience like now being the boss? When I would, the the process, of course, in an advertising agency is once you've written a script and got it approved, and if it's, you know, broadcast, then you would hire a production company. 
And by that, I mean, you would hire a director, a TV director, if it was television or a radio audio director, if it was radio. And I worked with directors in Toronto, Vancouver, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Minneapolis, all over North America, the best directors, because Trevor would back me when I wanted to try it. But I always had the same experience with them, which was they, I would end up fighting with the director to save my work from the director. Mm-hmm. In other words, they would want to turn my script upside down or just focus on the humor and not the sell, or they wouldn't want to cast it the way I had envisioned it. It was a constant fight and I was very frustrated by it. <clears throat> and I had that, what I referred to in my, in my second book is that fist slam moment that every entrepreneur has where I just went, you know, damn it, there's, there's just got to be a better way than this. And that led me to thinking that maybe I could start a company that protected ideas rather than wanting to turn them inside out and be a very creative shop that writers could feel safe bringing their work to. Because I was a writer and I knew what they went through before a script ever gets to the production stage. So that became Pirate, Pirate Radio, and then eventually Pirate Radio and Television. It was really born of, it was the company, I co-founded the company I could not find. And you had to, uh, you know, walk a mile in my shoes. You had to walk all those different shoes to, to understand what you wanted, what was important to you. Well, even when um, I announced to the president of the advertising agency I was working at that I was leaving to start a radio production company, he pulled me aside and he said, you know, you're, you're good at radio, but you'll never make a living at it. Oh, and I said, why? He goes, because radio is just not that exciting in the business. You'll never make a living at it. So, so think twice about it. But I knew in my heart, and Malcolm Gladwell has this theory that I subscribe to that entrepreneurs, what entrepreneurs share in common is not uh, an appetite for risk, but rather they're, they're convinced they're onto a sure thing. And I felt the same way. I felt, I know I can build a company that makes radio exciting, makes it fun, makes it creative and, and protects ideas. Like I, I, cause none of that was happening. So when we cr- created pirate, first of all, we created studios with windows that looked out over Toronto instead of being in a bunker, which all studios were at the time. They're always in the basement of buildings. We decorated it like a, like a high end Muskoka cottage. We, um, we served breakfast, lunch, and if you're working like dinner to all of, not only our clients, but to our staff, mm-hmm. or five-star catering on all of that. We would have pancake Fridays where, you know, we, one of us would put on the chef's cap and we're flipping pancakes. There were dogs running around our studios. It was like what Pirate created was really unusual. And the other thing Pirate did was we hired a lot of Hollywood talent. So, I discovered early that a lot of great Hollywood actors are very affordable, not the big stars. Like for example, I never work with Jerry Seinfeld, but I work with everybody else in that show. Oh yeah. Most of them were just scale actors. So I, we figured out a way that we could connect to Hollywood studios and use great, you know, mix Hollywood actors with Canadian actors. And we brought that to the advertising agencies and said, look what's possible. And, and that was another epiphany for the advertising business that they could actually have access to, to that caliber of talent. You uh, not only had a vision of what you wanted to do from what you had learned, but you weren't scared to try new things. And this was your chance to do it. 
it was my chance to do it. And it all, it was all born of, of all my frustrations. So I really felt pretty confident in, in pursuing new things because it was something that I always wondered why it didn't exist already. Like why, why not try it? And the, and the agents down there were very open to it. And literally they were scale actors. Like you would, you know, Jerry Stiller at that time probably cost us like $400 to be in a commercial. Like it's audio, right? Not television, but audio. Yeah. It was a much different rate than, than television, right? But nobody had asked. Nobody had asked. Nobody thought Canada could pull that off. Just nobody tried it. It wasn't, it was just as simple as that. Now, Terry, your most well-known role and where we recognize your voice most from is as the host of the award-winning CBC Radio 1 Sirius Satellite WBEZ Chicago radio show, Under the Influence. This is a narrated show about the world of marketing. You're currently in your 11th season. You're approaching 400 episodes. Congratulations. You keep it's finding our, new... Co- it's, our it's our 17th season. Oh, excuse me. 11th season is under the influence, but okay. Age of Persuasion was before that. Yeah, The Age of Persuasion was the precursor to that show. And in a similar vein, you just talked about Seinfeld. In the same way that the fictional Jerry and George Costanza somehow convinced NBC to buy and air a show about nothing, right. you, Terry O'Reilly, achieve something even greater. You somehow convinced the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, to buy your show about the power of advertising to be broadcast on an advertising-free <laughs> network. Please explain that pitch. That is so funny that you say that. I, of, I often, when I talk about this show, I, I often talk about that very, you know, ironic thing. Um, one of the biggest things marketing strategies we had at Pirate was I would hold a big creative radio day every year. So I would rent a big theater in Toronto. I would invite 200 young ad writers from across the country to spend the day with me. I'd give them breakfast, lunch in an open bar, but I would stand on a stage, Andrew, for seven hours and teach them everything I knew about radio, like script structure, humor versus drama, the use of sound effects, how to communicate music to music composers, how to present radio, like all of that. I would just give them everything I've ever learned. And I was directing 500 commercials a year at that point. So the amount of dead ends and brilliant solutions I saw was, were, was substantial. So I had a lot to say about it. And a friend of mine one day said, you know, that creative seminar you do. And I said, yeah, he said, that would make a great radio show. And I said, who would ever air that? And he said, he thought for a moment, he said, CBC. And I said, the advertising free CBC would air a show on advertising. And he said, I think they'd air that one. And we, we had a, we're out having drinks where it was in the sunlight, you know, myself and three other guys having beers in the sun. And we had a good laugh about it. Then I went home and I couldn't get it out of my mind. Wow. And one of the other people there, Mike Tennant, also a good radio writer, called me up a couple of days later and he said, do you want to try to pitch that idea to CBC? And I said, let's try it. As crazy as it sounds, let's try it. So he put together a very simple document. Mike knew somebody at CBC, so he was able to get us a meeting, which okay. is also a big thing, right? Just getting a meeting sometimes is difficult, but we got a meeting with the head of CBC radio. We walked into the board. Actually, when we were on the elevator on the way up, we both said to each other, CBC will never buy this in a million years, but maybe they'll like us and maybe we'll do something else together. Okay. That was really our, our, our thought going up in the elevator. When we got into the boardroom, 
this was basically the pitch, Andrew. It was very short and simple. We said, you know, most people hate advertising. It's intrusive and annoying, and they wish it would go away. But in reality, it is a fascinating business because it's the study of human nature. And nobody studies human nature like the advertising business. And I said, we're not academics. We're not journalists. We're not pundits. We're working ad men in the trenches. We have stories and we have access. And we want to take Canadians, the average Canadian, on a backstage tour of the closed world of big-time advertising. That was the whole pitch. And Chris Boyce, who was head of CBC Radio at the time, leaned back in his chair and said, we'll take it. And I don't think Mike and I, our eyebrows didn't come down till about, you know, two weeks later. And then we had to go away and figure out how to mount a a national radio show. This is, this is a truth is stranger than fiction. This sounds uh, exactly like the uh, Seinfeld proposition. They didn't expect it. Once they got it, they realized they had to produce something. So now you had to go and produce the show. I know. And they only took us on for a summer replacement series. So they said, we'll, we'll put you on in July and August. Okay. While one of our other big shows is on hiatus. And we said, that's great. We love it. That's fantastic. We were just thrilled at the opportunity, thrilled beyond belief. And when the first episode aired, we braced ourselves for blowback because here we were talking about advertising as yeah. you said earlier, on CBC's pristine airwaves. <clears throat> and we, you know, we, we gripped the side of our desks waiting for the blowback and it never came. All we got were these wonderful messages and emails from listeners saying that they, they really liked the show and they were intrigued and they never thought about advertising this way. It was all kind and curious. And when we were about six shows into our eight show season, CBC said to us, we're going to keep you on. You're, you're going to become one of our regular shows. So suddenly we had an ongoing concern. And here we are, 17 we seasons are. later, 400 episodes. I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but I think this is a good opportunity for you to talk about th- how things have changed. Maybe I don't understand this. I can listen to your program Thursdays and Saturdays at 11.30 a.m. on the radio. Appointment right. viewing. But I also can get the podcast anytime. I guess it's just a different delivery system or why do we still have these two competing methodologies or, or it's really just different ways to reach different people? I think it's different audiences. I think uh, first and foremost, I think people who listen to podcasts and people who listen to live radio are two different uh, species. I really do. Uh, and I hear it all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm out giving talks across the country and people always come up to say hi after. And I, they either say I listen every Saturday or I download. I, I never hear someone say, if I miss your show, I'll download. I never hear that. It's either they listen to radio or they pod or they download the podcast. So I think that's the biggest answer to your question. And then the other thing is podcasting offered us this wonderful opportunity to, we put additional content in our podcast because we're not restricted to 27 minutes and 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's, uh, you know, there's a little bonus to listening to the podcast sometimes, although the the on-air version has great music in it that I have to strip out for podcasting. Like if I'm playing the Beatles or the Stones or the White Stripes, I got to take it out for podcasting. So you get a better listening experience on CBC Radio 1, but you get more content on podcasts. Well, it's interesting. So there's a very distinct audience for each. And I guess it doesn't mean we have to get rid of one. You can do them for both. You get different audiences, different reaction. And as you say, even different content. 
Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful thing. It's uh, and then podcasting, of course, uh, led to us starting our company that we mentioned earlier. But it's this wonderful. Like radio was 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 I think struggling prior to podcasting. Radio was you know radio got very highly uh, programmed. There wasn't any dangerous disc jockeys anymore or, or interesting underground radio stations. It all became very homogenized. Satellite radio came, which I hoped was going to kick terrestrial radios asked to get more creative and interesting, but it never happened. Mm. And even with websites, when websites emerged, Andrew, my company never got much work because people were instantly trying to mute sound on a website, you know, like nobody Mm. wanted sound on a website. So we couldn't even kick our way into the digital world as an audio production company. And then podcast happened, which really was this, wonderful new way to look at audio and look at how, I mean, now there's over 2 million podcasts. It's led to its own problems of discovery. How do you get a new podcast under people's noses when there's 2 million choices out there, but it has just revived. I think the, the world of audio. Well, on that note, you started your own network, the apostrophe podcast network. You convinced your wife and kids to join you in launching this company. So who exactly is involved? You talked a little before about generally how your family was involved, but who is specifically involved? How do you work together? How did you come up with this name, the Apostrophe Podcast Network? Uh, so in the, in the name O'Reilly, there's an apostrophe. And the digital world does not accept apostrophe. So whenever we check into a hotel, you know, it'll say, oh, you know, uh, pound sign, exclamation marks, <laughs> period, colon, R-E-I-L-L-Y, like the digital world. Even when people, you know, we say, my name is O'Reilly, and they'll look on their list, they can't find it. And I'll say, okay, take out the apostrophe. They go, oh, there you are. So it, it's the bane of our existence in a digital world. Yes. So that is the uh, origin of the apostrophe podcast company. My wife uh, worked in advertising years ago, uh, so she understands production and keeping uh, something on the rails because that was her role in advertising agencies. Um, my youngest daughter, Sydney, uh, is a journalism uh, um, graduate and a great writer, and she wanted to write podcasts. She wanted to write a show. She's a wonderful writer. She is miles beyond me at her, when I was her age like miles beyond me. Uh, my other daughter, Callie Ray, was a director in the advertising business. So I, we all sat around one day. I said, you know, we had this amazing skill set because Debbie, my wife, knows how to coordinate an executive produce a production. Sydney knows how to write. Cal knows how to direct. I know how to market them. There's, there's a company there. I said, do you want to try a, um, putting together a podcasting company? And everybody said, we'd love to. And I love working with them. It's just like nobody has your back like your family. Yep. Because partnerships, Andrew, are very difficult things, right? I've been through a lot of them in my career. They're very difficult. But we have this wonderful, everybody has a superpower, which I love, which I think great bosses, you know, can, can spot people's superpowers and encourage them. But everybody in this company has a superpower, one superpower, you know, and together it's, it's, it's an awesome thing. Well, you've really hit the uh, pinnacle, Terry, and being able to have work, family, life, you are broadcasting from what you call the Terra Stream studio. Not, not, uh, not today, but uh, 
maybe talk a little about two things. First of all, your studio, the Terra Stream. You talked a little about getting the Airstream, the 69 Airstream. But also your focus with this company is what you call driveway podcasts. And what do you mean by that? We would get emails from people, still do as a matter of fact, that say something to the effect of, I was listening to your podcast on the way home, and then I sat in my driveway for 20 minutes waiting for it to finish. And my, my wife must have thought I had, uh, something had happened to me. Or I drove to the grocery store and sat in the parking lot for 15 minutes until your show ended. That's the ultimate compliment you can give a podcaster or a radio show host. So we said that's, that's our goal is to create driveway podcasts where you will sit in your car, you know, and alarm your neighbors for 20 minutes for not getting out of your car in your own driveway because you want to hear the end of the show. So that, that's where that came from. That's fantastic. Yeah. So that was, that's, that's the great part of that. The, the Terrastream Airstream, um, as I may have mentioned earlier, was just the solution to not having to drive into Toronto anymore to record the show. So we found a, a 60s era Air, Airstream, found somebody who could, it was a great search too. I, I figured I'd have to find somebody who knew how to restore Airstreams. Then I had to find somebody else who knew how to create recording studios because that's two different skill sets. Yep. I did a big search. You know, I could find one or the other. They were never in the same cities or the same provinces or the same states or the same countries. And then one day I, I stumbled on this website of this guy that not only restored Airstreams, but also built studios and editing suites for Hollywood uh, studios and things of that nature. I thought, this is the guy. And I'm scrolling down his website thinking, where in, where in California are you? And I get to the end of it and he's in Nova Scotia. So I called him up. I said, you, you restore Airstreams? He goes, that's what I do. I said, and you create editing suites and recording studios in them? He said, yep. I said, how are you in Nova Scotia? He said, I'm a transplanted Californian. And I went, ah, okay, I got it. That's so, it. Debbie and I bought, we found an Airstream that wasn't far from our home, which is because there's not many in Canada. Uh, and then we, the first time we ever pulled it, Andrew, we, we carted it all the way to Nova Scotia, including getting on a ferry, pulling an Airstream. Yeah. Which we had to, you know, grit our teeth and do and left it with them for a year. And then we went back a year later to see the unveiling of this piece of art he created and that became that is the airstream and one of our listeners said it's not an airstream it's a terrestream it's terry's airstream and that we said god we love that so that's that name came from one of our listeners which we just loved and adopted so that's the story of the terrestream and as you know terry it's all about branding and you even applied it to your studio yeah let's talk about your books you have three of note and in 2009 with mike tennant as your co-writer, The Age of Persuasion, How Marketing Ate Our Culture, Showing How the Art of Persuasion Shapes Our Culture. 2017, This I Know, Marketing Lessons from Under the Influence, which you shared all your career's learnings about this business. But let's talk about your current and latest book, My Best Mistake, Epic Fails and Silver Linings. In this, you uncover the very surprising power of screwing up and you Talk to people about the remarkable stories they made, what they thought were catastrophic career mistakes, but these things ended up being the best things that ever happened to them. Tell us about your book and how you enjoyed putting it together. If you've ever listened to, to our radio show, you'll know that I'm fascinated by strategy. I'm fascinated by how companies overcome huge obstacles 
how people overcome huge obstacles. Cause that's a big part of marketing. It's, you know, one of the first questions I always asked new clients was what's stepping on your garden hose. In other words, what's stopping the flow of revenue in the marketplace for you? What's the obstacle? Because mm-hmm. once you can identify that, then you can do something about it. So this book was really an extension of that was, as you said, it was telling the stories of people who made catastrophic career decisions where they lost their credibility. They lost their revenue, their, their careers in some cases, uh, and even their sanity in some cases, but it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to them. And I thought that was a fascinating um, subject to explore. So that was really the genesis of of the book. And then I, started looking for great stories where people had literally the, the, the defining thing, the, the connective tissue between all those stories, because there, you know, there's athletes, actors, writers, business people, doctors. I, I talk about all walks of life, but the connective tissue is that all of these people experienced just a catastrophic situation that they had, they had made happen. That's the thing. It wasn't a, it wasn't an accident. They had made a decision that ended up being catastrophic, Mm -hmm. but they muscled through it. That was the key thing. They didn't run away, which a lot of people do or pretend it didn't happen or, or just, you know, um, stop chasing their goals and go in a different direction. These people stuck with it. They owned their mistake. They muscled through it. And then they came out the other side of the tunnel in a better place. So I just thought that was a fascinating, I'm fascinated by those stories. So I just hunted the best stories I could find. And that's the book. I think it's very interesting that you distinguish between things that happened to us. The obvious one being COVID ruined my business, totally out of your control, but you've really focused on things where it was, it was their own decision. They thought it was the right one at the time. Wasn't, but they kept going. You call that intestinal fortitude. Yeah. A lot of people. I do. That's exactly what I would call it. And it's hard because you're, you've been humiliated. And, uh, you know, the first chapter is Steven Spielberg and Jaws, which and I made it the first chapter, Andrew, because it's, it's a perfect example of the rest of the book where Steven Spielberg was 27 years old. He gets a chance to direct his first big feature length movie. It's about Jaws from the, the best-selling book. Instead of shooting it with miniature sharks in a, in a tank in Hollywood, he's got a lot of first-time bravado. So he decides he wants to build full-sized animatronic sharks and shoot it in the ocean, which you know was a huge, huge uh, ask, even of Hollywood standards. He needed three animatronic sharks to pull it all off because each one did a different function. He tests them in freshwater tanks in Hollywood. They, they work really well. He goes out to Martha's Vineyard to shoot the movie. They put the sharks in the water and the, war, and the, the sharks malfunction almost instantly. Hmm. Seize up, they corrode, the pneumatic hoses burst. So think about what, where he is at. He's on location with his crew, with his cast, with his sharks, and the sharks don't work and the sharks are the star. So he's panicking. He's in his hotel room panicking in the dark one night, thinking his career is over because of the decision he made. And then he asks himself one question. He says, what would Hitchcock do? Okay. And when he recalibrated his thinking that way, he realized in an instant, what we can't see is the scariest thing of all. So in that movie, you don't, we only see the full length shark, Andrew, for four minutes. Mm. The rest of the movie is impl- implied by a fin 
or uh, the music, John Williams' famous score. Like we, we just, it's just, and you feel it in your mind as you're seeing the shark, the whole film. But the mistake he made, which I thought was the most interesting bit of information, because most people know that story about the failing shark, but the reason it failed was he never tested it in salt water. Mm. That was the catastrophic mistake he made. Salt water corroded everything. Oh, wow. And it became the best thing that ever happened to him because for, by not showing the shark, he created one of the most vivid, uh, visceral movies of all time. And he even says that the malfunctioning shark added $175 million to the box office. All from taking a mistake and sticking with it, sticking, coming up with a better solution. Right. Sticking, muscling through it. Now, Terry, there's a lot of, uh, companies and organizations, all of them, in fact, they face key marketing issues. And, and you have some very specific philosophies about how to deal with these things. So if, if I may, I'd like to get a comment from you on some of your key things you like to focus on. What is the power of emotion in marketing? And I guess this could be subtitled, if you don't have a story, you don't have a business. Yeah. Emotion is very important to you. It is because I think if people don't feel your message in their gut, they won't act on it. Therefore, that you can't just present the facts. They'll get it intellectually, but they won't act on it. So that if you can make them feel it in your gut, in their gut, if they can feel the emotion of the message, the chances of them acting on it go way up. So, and storytelling is one of the best um, delivery mechanisms for emotion. So, I'm, I'm a big fan of storytelling, and emotion is critical. I think that the, uh, my personal view is the customer is not always right. I think they're, in fact, often wrong in my experience. But I do believe that the customer is king. Yeah. You talk about customer service equals profit. What do you mean by that? I think a lot of companies think that enhanced customer service is a cost. You know, putting one more person on the store floor or, you know, making something available to your clients or your customers, you know, that isn't there now, that it's just going to cost you money. But my belief is the best customer service, the customer service people remember and are shocked to get will make you money because people will come back. They will talk about you. They will return. It, it is the, I think it's just uh, an absolute profit center because great customer service is so rare. Whenever I get great customer service, I'm always shocked because it happens so rarely in my life where yeah. someone goes above and beyond the call. And uh, because it's so rare, it should tell you everything, that that is the gaping hole in, uh, in, in business these days. And I, I use a stat in one of my talks that 80% of CEOs believe that their companies deliver top quality customer service. And when customers were surveyed, only 8% believe that. But a like gap, the, gap, yeah. the gap is, 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 is the Grand Canyon. So while there's many ways to make customers happy and to, and to make a company healthy and profitable, one of the most glaring ways to do it is by offering superlative, creative, interesting, unexpected customer service. You also talk, Terry, about jumping the fence, the power of counterintuitive thinking. What do you mean by that exactly? There are, in every category of business, 
say you're in the beer business or the tire business or, you know, whatever business it is, there's, there's a conventional way of thinking that everybody buys into. There's a reason why all beer ads look the same and all car ads look the same is that those industries inhale their own exhaust fumes. And what I say to two categories is stop thinking like a car maker and start thinking like a great marketer instead. Mm-hmm. Because those boundaries, those, those, those boundaries in our minds where, you know, you have to stay between guardrails in an industry or a category are artificial. They're, they're put, they're just an artificial boundary. So I'm saying push those guardrails back and do some great advertising and marketing instead of just doing what you think a beer, I'm using beer as an example, what you think traditional beer marketing should look like. Yeah. So that's my, when I say jump your fence, I want you to, to identify your fence, identify those artificial boundaries in your mind and start thinking uh, like a, like a great marketer instead of just a beer marketer. And I think that's, uh, that's rarely done. Even when I, you know, even every ad writer dreams of getting their hands on a beer account because it, it's just one of those flags, flagship brand, you know, yep. categories. When I finally got there, when I finally got my chance at a first big brand, it was incredibly disappointing because of all the entrenched thinking in the marketing of it. Like you had to show beautiful women in the beer ads. And I just resented that, that there had to be a better way you don't have to have the sexuality. Like, is it necessary to have a sexuality in a beer commercial or do you have to show 50 people? Does it always have to be a party? Like there was just such entrenched thinking in that, that I just really railed against. And that really is what I mean by counterintuitive thinking, you know, um, not being constrained by the, 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 because and here's the other thing. Creativity loves constraint. The small, you know, my, Trevor Google used to say, you know, creative problem solving was like doing ballet in a phone booth. And I always love that analogy, Andrew, because what he was saying was creativity loves constraint. Like when you have no resources, that's when you are your most resourceful. Yes. And give me the freedom of a tight briefing document, right? Give me, give me a, a really concise, like don't say Terry, ever, advertise Airstreams. You know, say to me, Terry, 70% of the Airstream since 1934 are still on the road. Give me an ad that says that. Like, give me a concise thing to work to. Yeah. So, uh, great. And even, you know, I tell a story, Andrew, about Audi wanted to uh, win the Le Mans race, the 24-hour endurance race, because whatever car brand wins that race is usually touted as the best car brand in the world. But the head engineer said to his team, how do we win the Le Mans race if we can't build a faster engine? And what a huge challenge that is, right? Because historically, the only way to win is you squeak out a few more horsepower in your engine. So his team went away. They applied some counterintuitive thinking, and they came back with this brilliant solution. They created a diesel engine that required 30% fewer pit stops. And they won the Le Mans for the next three years in a row. It wasn't faster. The solution was in the engine. It just wasn't in the horsepower. It was in eliminating the, the pit stops. And I, that kind of thinking I cannot get enough of. That's fantastic. Well, it, it's, uh, it's amazing when you, these things aren't fictional. You are talking about actual case studies and everything right. you do. And right. you, you never seem to run out of case studies. Well, the amazing thing about doing this show, Andrew, is that um, the easiest part of the show is coming up with the episode themes because so much is happening in the world of marketing around the world at any given time. It's such a a vibrant industry 
the research is the toughest part of the show, but coming up with the ideas and the case studies is in fact the easiest. As we get close to wrapping up, you've been very generous with your time. I would be remiss if I did not ask, how often have you been mistaken for the Boston Bruins enforcer? And have you ever met the other Terry O'Reilly? So funny you say that. So only on the phone, because I'm not a huge guy like Terry O'Reilly, the Boston Bruin uh, enforcer was. But I'll tell you two quick stories. So I always tried to get him on my show because I used to do, for example, funny little phone calls at the end of my shows. And I always wanted Terry O'Reilly to call in because whenever I would call a restaurant to make a reservation or to make a car appointment, inevitably somebody would say, are you the Terry O'Reilly? And I knew what they meant by that is, am I the hockey player? So I got that my whole life. And uh, I thought it would be funny to get him on my radio show. Could not get him. I went, I had connections because I had done the Hockey Hall of Fame's advertising years. I went through the Hockey Hall of Fame to get him. He wouldn't respond. I went through the Bruins alumni. So he he never responded to me. I have a friend who has a, who has a friend that works at a car rental place in Ottawa and Terry O'Reilly, the hockey player was renting a car there one day, Andrew. And she said, name, please. He said, Terry O'Reilly. She goes, are you the Terry O'Reilly? Are you the CPC radio host? And he of course said no. And I thought, thank God it's happened at least once to him because it's happened to me my whole life. So that that's the funny story about uh, the Terry O'Reilly's. Why did he? Uh, why did he not have an interest in uh, in appearing? I I would have jumped at that. I would think he would find that just as humorous as you and I are. Yeah, I thought so too. And it would have taken him, you know, all of ten minutes to sort of participate in that little thing I had planned. He just—I don't know. I can't answer it. He just never replied. Well, it's yeah. interesting that he. First of all, I should note he he once scored ninety points in a season. So in addition to being an enforcer, he also could score. But I think he got a resurgence when with uh, Adam Sandler's movie. He was Happy Gilmore's yeah. favorite player. That's and exactly I assume that Terry O'Reilly brand was back in, in full right. force. Well, if you follow on, if you search Terry O'Reilly on Twitter, there is a ton of activity around him. Like even to this day, Terry O'Reilly, especially in the Boston area. But I mean, you, there is chatter about Terry O'Reilly that, that is just, you, you'll see Twitter just, tro- just scroll like this. So he's still a big presence out there. And it's always good for the brand. Yeah. Terry, as we wrap up, what are your plans for the remainder of 2022 and beyond? What are you working on in addition to everything you're currently working on? Well, I think it's going to be more of what we're doing now. Our our podcast company is only two years old. So there's lots of work to be done there. Uh, Increasing our audiences. Um, Under the Influence was downloaded 7 million times in 2021. A million of those downloads were around the world. So I'd, I'd really like to try and, ge- and generate more of that audience around the world. We're, we have a huge audience in Australia, in the UK. Uh, so I want to concentrate on doing that, getting more of an international audience. Um, and uh, I probably will have a, another book on the go, not, not this year, but I may start it next year. So there'll be hopefully another book coming out. But really, it's it's to grow the Apostrophe Podcast Network. That's just uh, a thrilling aspect of what I'm doing now. And I I love the family business aspect of it. So that's going to be our focus for the next couple of years. Well, you're really on top of things in terms of your career, but you've got it all. You've got the family. You got the work. You got things to grow. You got things to work on. It was great having you, Terry. Please remind the listeners where we can best hear, read, 
follow and reach out to Terry O'Reilly? Well, uh, the apostrophe podcast, apostrophepodcasts.ca is our company website. You can see what's going on, all the shows we have on our, on our network, uh, bios of everybody behind the scenes. We have lots of fun stuff on that uh, website. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. I mean, hello at terryoreilly.ca. My website, terryoreilly.ca, is, is got a lot of fun stuff on it. I have a little book club on there that when I, because reading is a big part of the research, I always recommend books. I do events that are on there. There's a lot of fun stuff. The whole, you can see the whole transition of the, of the Terror Stream, Andrew, from getting it all dented up and old to the whole, you can see the whole renovation process to a beautiful, shiny, gorgeous thing. It's all documented on that website. So the website, um, through apostrophe, I'm on Twitter at Terry O Influence. I'm on Instagram at Terry O Influence. On Facebook at Under the Influence. So lots of places to find us. Fabulous. Well, thanks for your time. It was really great talking to you. And to the listeners, we say thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Terry O'Reilly, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, 4Kids Flashback. 4Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. 
I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback.